Welcome everyone to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastrology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. I'm Tamara Hajat, a pediatric gastrologist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, Dr. Jen Lee, a pediatric gastrologist at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Jen, how are you doing? Doing great today. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So I'm taking improv lessons and I'm at 301 level right now. What does that mean? It means that uh, <laughs> I'm at the third level. So I took like 101 and that was Ooh. about seven weeks or so. So that was like kind of just general improv. And then 201 was object work. And then 301 was... Um, a little bit more of like character. So we're doing kind of learning how to become different characters. Are you in a I, troupe? I, what's that? Is it a troupe? Like an in, improv troupe? Uh, not what's yet. Gonna <laughs> it's going to be like Shakespeare from the 1700s. You'll travel around, do improv. It'll be pretty great. Yeah, not yet, but... Um, Maybe later when I graduate. So there's like five levels. So when I graduate, maybe I'll become uh, uh, one of like the, uh, uh, I'll be a presenter and like I'll become a very important, famous improviser. (laughs) A famous improviser. (laughs) I love that. What are you excited about? I am excited that I got my booster dose for the COVID vaccine. So I'm feeling a little bit more reassured right now. I know you have exciting news as well about the COVID vaccine. Yeah, Olivia got her vaccine. Uh, This is follow up from last episode. She did get her My Little Pony Band-Aid. We had to open three Band-Aids to get to it, but she got the one she wanted. (laughs) And then it was really cute at the hospital. They gave out capes and they had a superhero like sticker and she got to take a picture it was very cute yeah and i saw that you uh posted it on twitter so yeah to promote the last episode for those who haven't listened yeah. check it out <laughs> check it out check it out so okay. we got a couple new reviews uh you want to shout them out yeah so uh shout out to not ben gold <laughs> that's really that's a real um reviewer's name not ben gold is. i don't know if it is <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, not Ben Gold says, "Fun. Who doesn't like talking about poop? Keep it going. <laughs> also keep five stars. Going. Five stars. Okay, so mine is from the glorified plumber, which I guess that's a fun name too. Are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is such a great podcast. I've learned so much, and you make it fun. It's humbling learning from our great mentors and leaders within our field. Keep it up." Keep it up. Well, that's our plan to keep it up. (laughs) (laughs) So today we are talking about fecal microbiota transplant. So poop. (laughs) So more poop. This is a whole episode about poop. And we have none other than Dr. Stacey Kahn, who is the director of the Fecal Microbiota Transplantation Center at Boston Children's Hospital and an assistant professor of pediatric at Harvard Medical School to come talk to us about this. You know, Jen, this is a very exciting episode. I've been really dying to have Dr. Khan on Bow Sounds because she's such a great physician. I've met her through NASPGAN. Uh, I've worked with her kind of 
because I was uh, part of the fellowship committee and I was a co-chair. So I worked with her when I was uh, the co-chair and she's just amazing. She's great. So I'm excited for this episode. Well, and I learned so much, you know, fecal microbiota transplant is not something we do super often. And it's kind of weird if you think about it, but it makes a huge impact in certain people's lives. So I'm really, really looking forward to sharing the episode. Yeah, such exciting episode. On to the show. On to the show. Dr. Khan, it's great to have you today. Um, We're very excited to talk to you today. We're going to be talking a little bit about uh, FMT. But before we begin, we'd like to ask you perhaps the most difficult question that we ask our guests How would you describe yourself in one sentence? Well, first, I'd like to say thank you to you both for having me. I'm so honored to have been chosen to be part of this incredible podcast that you all host and provide to our community. When I got this assignment, I actually asked my 13-year-old daughter, who was horrified and said, it's your homework, mommy. You figure it out. (laughs) I think it's interesting to try to reflect on who we are. I think we have a part of ourselves that we identify as our professional self. In that case, I would say that I'm a scientific researcher who's interested in important clinical questions as they relate to inflammatory bowel disease, recurrent Clostridium difficile, fecal microbiota transplant, and novel microbiome-based therapies, and a compassionate medical provider. And then outside of work, I like to think of myself as a little bit different identity. (laughs) I think of myself as an adventurous, spontaneous, unloving, and compassionate mom, partner, friend, daughter. Oh, I want to be your friend. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Let's be friends. Yeah. I love it. Make uh, friends. So, I'm uh, hoping we're already friends. <laughs> exactly. We're new friends. We just met today. Um, so we've been asking our listeners uh, this question during the pandemic just to give some ideas of other things to read and listen to. So do you have any books, podcasts, or recent TV shows or movies that you've read, listened to, or seen that you would recommend to our listeners? Sure. Well, so first, of course, I would recommend Bowel Sounds. I think uh-huh, it's incredibly uh-huh. well done. <laughs> and I've been so impressed with the professionalism and content that you all have delivered. And it's it's really, it's really incredible. So Thank obviously, you. I recommend that. And outside of that, it's actually interesting that you ask. I have two recommendations. One is a podcast called No Place Like Home. It is about the mysterious theft of one of the pairs of Dorothy Ruby slippers. And what's interesting to learn is that Judy Garland actually had multiple pairs of Ruby slippers that were originally going to be thrown away and have become a true Hollywood relic. And there is a pair that was stolen from the museum in her hometown. And it follows the history both of her Dorothy's story in the movie, as well as the actress's life and the mysterious disappearance of these ruby slippers that hold so much meaning. The other is a TV show about a podcast called Only Murders in Our Building with several very famous people, including Steve Martin and Martin Short and Selena Gomez. So it's an interesting mashup of a cast. And 
it's about a murder in a fancy New York apartment building. And the actors decide to make a podcast about the murder in the building. So it's very clever and very entertaining. And actually, it's been a great outlet because I can actually watch it with my kids. That sounds amazing. That's something I think I would watch. It's very clever. What was the podcast that came out about... Um, was it Anand and then the murder from high school? That was the first podcast I ever listened to, murder podcast. Ah, oh, what was that? It'll come back to me. Well, it's really funny. Serial. They, yeah. Oh, serial. Yeah. So oh, this what? is sort of making fun of the true crime podcast lovers. Oh, uh, like it, me. I know. <laughs> <we're just> like, <laughs> it's a little self-mocking, so it's and it's charming. And of course, it's got some humor and it's got some appeal about the younger generation and the older generation. And it's very fun. I think that that'd be a show that I can watch. So I'll definitely well, let me know when out. you catch up and we can talk about who did it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so moving to our topic. So your interests include focusing on the care of children with inflammatory bowel disease, but you're also a leader in FMT. And um, I learned this new, which is amazing, very impressive. You performed the first colonoscopy FMT in pediatric patients. Can you tell us um, how you developed your interest in FMT and um how was your experience when you just you did the first FMT ever in a pediatric patient? Well, thank you. It's been really an exciting career, and I certainly have to thank my mentors and my colleagues who also are pioneers in this field. Certainly, I would not have pursued this career had it not been for others around me, like George Russell, who performed the first pediatric FMT in a patient uh, via an NG tube and had success and was really willing to share his experience, as well as others like Colleen Kelly, who's an adult gastroenterologist at Brown, who has really helped pave the way for others, and my mentor, David Rubin, at, when I was in training at University of Chicago, who said, hey, what do you think of fecal transplant, and do you think it's something people would be interested in, and would it be something we could do for our patients with IBD? And perhaps the most credit goes to my first patient's mom, who was an organic chemist and really had a true passion for science and had a child who at 11 months of age had developed C. diff following an antibiotic course for bronchitis, probably something that didn't need antibiotics in the first place, and had spent half of his life on antibiotics to treat the recurrences of C. diff, which just would not go away, a previously healthy child with no other medical problems. And she came to me and she said, would you be willing to do this? We've seen every doctor for this condition. Nobody knows what to do. And we decided we would pursue this treatment for this child who really was suffering with this debilitating infection. And what was amazing was the, the support I got from the institution, as well as from the FDA, permission to do this treatment as well as from the family who really were so dedicated and came from far away out of state to receive this treatment, which really was life-changing for the family. And within 24 to 48 hours of the fecal transplant, the patient had a return to his baseline health, was able to gain weight, had no further recurrences wow. of C. diff. And I'm still in touch with the mom and he's, he's great. And he's been able to go on antibiotics since then and not had any recurrences of his C. diff and he's thriving. And you realize how sometimes a very simple treatment conceptually can really be the answer for some of our patients. So as we talk a little more about what FMT even is, I wonder 
What was that conversation like with the family? You know, right now we have a lot of literature to support FMT and pediatrics, but when you first explain what FMT is, like what kind of reactions do you get from your parents, from the patients? Like you're going to do what? (laughs) So I would say that patients are ahead of us and families are actually ahead of us in this game. If you have a family member or you yourself suffer from C. diff or another GI illness, I don't have to tell you guys, the quality of life is really, really impaired, you know, being worried about leaving the house, access to a bathroom, worried about feeling sick, not able to play, go to school, do your job. So they're pretty willing to consider a lot of treatments that most of us would not consider because they really want their life back to normal. And so it's actually, although kids may say yuck, and we often refer to this in the literature as the yuck factor, most families are actually very willing to consider this treatment. We find more resistance from providers and regulatory bodies around this idea. And as we're saying, like around this idea, what is FMT? So at its simplest description, we describe FMT as the collection of stool from a healthy individual that has been extensively screened. The individual goes through a rigorous medical and social screening that's not too dissimilar to what they undergo if they're going to donate blood. And then they have to go through rigorous screening of their blood and their stool for infections. And many of the processes also involve a quarantining of the material so that we have a window to make sure that even after initial screening, there's no development of new infections. So it's pretty intense. It's pretty hard to be a stool donor. It's actually harder to be a stool donor than it is to get into Harvard. And studies have shown this, that we have stool donor acceptance rates of less than 3%. So it really speaks to how seriously we take this idea of trying to find a healthy donor. We certainly appreciate all of our donors. Yeah, absolutely. 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 So what are the criteria for somebody to be a donor and what are they screened for? So as we know, healthy is a very relative term and how you describe a healthy donor is We've gotten narrow in our definition over the years, and that came from the fact that we realized certain populations of individuals just by the nature of their lifestyle or their exposures perhaps weren't necessarily ideal donors. So we started off with the same screening that the blood banks use, and then we took it a step further to include autoimmune diseases would be an exclusion criteria, any bowel or GI upset on a regular basis would be an exclusion, major surgeries are an exclusion, family history of an inflammatory condition, including autoimmune conditions would be an exclusion, patients who suffer from things like constipation or chronic diarrhea and IBS are excluded. So we really tried to get a healthy population. Obviously, transmissible infections are excluded, malignancy is excluded, but we really tried to find young, healthy individuals who hadn't had health issues themselves or hadn't been on antibiotics. So it's quite rigorous. And then those individuals donate stool, which then gets prepared. It's usually prepared in a preservative-free saline solution and filtered to take out particular matter. And then this fecal material can be delivered via colonoscopy, upper endoscopy, a nasogastric or nasoduodenal tube or an NJ tube via an enema. And more recently in the past several years, there have also been oral forms that have been capsules of desiccated material 
and they're double capsuled. <laughs> so people don't have to worry about smell or taste. Those are the current options, though others are looking into more pediatric-friendly delivery routes. Some of the groups that manufacture material that, boy, wouldn't it be great if we got a gummy? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but there are logistical <laughs> <be> a very, issues. <laughs> a very interesting way to do FMT. <laughs> so we're no cherry flavoring. No, but I think, you know, I think that's really fascinating. And the patient that you told us about has had a remarkable recovery from having such debilitating disease. Can you talk about what patients you consider for FMT? So what's interesting is since this has become a more common treatment and more widely available treatment, the FDA has become involved with the regulation of the fecal material and has also been involved with the guidelines around the use of it. So currently the guidelines involve three or more C. diff infections. So one primary infection with two or more recurrences. It is also included in the guidance that individuals who have more moderate infections and require hospitalizations or individuals who have severe and refractory C. diff will also be eligible with it at the discretion of the treating provider. The major stipulation is that when you perform FMT, we recommend that you receive FMT from a center that has experience with this, uh, with a provider who has performed other FMTs. And it is required by the FDA that you explain that this is an experimental or investigational therapy and not an approved therapy. So we can discuss the risks and benefits as we can with any procedure or treatment we provide, but there is a lot more unknowns with this. You did mention that there's uh, different methods of delivering FMT. How would you determine which method to deliver FMT? What are the pros and cons of each method? So I would say that this has evolved a bit over time. And you can even see that in the initial exposure of our patients to FMT. So that when George Russell performed his first FMT, they did nasogastric delivery through the tube and it was very successful. And then there was a bit of a pushback saying, wow, or should we really be delivering fecal microbes to the stomach? And what's going to happen to that bacterial community? What are the risks? And, you know, there are pros and cons to that route of delivery. It's certainly one of the most direct routes. And in terms of simplicity's sake, you know, there's no sedation, there's no invasive procedure. And I would say that there are some groups that have really shown that that can be incredibly successful. And I think using C. diff as a model, that for C. diff, it doesn't seem to make a huge difference of which route you choose. And Mm -hmm. I think what we now understand is that maybe your route of delivery might matter for conditions other than C. diff or based on the patient's underlying health issues and that that needs to be considered. I would say that initially, we also didn't see C. diff as commonly in our younger children, and we are seeing increased rates in our youngest patients. And so for a while, we were really concerned that anybody who presented at a young age with recurrent C. diff might have underlying IBD or some other inflammatory condition of the bowel. And in that case, we were going to perform a colonoscopy and an endoscopy anyway. And so that seemed to be a good Uh, approach for those patients. I think we've learned that kids do get recurrent C. diff even at a very young age, and your patient may not warrant a colonoscopy, and you have to really decide is a colonoscopy and the risk that go along with it the best route of delivery. I would say I make decisions on a case-by-case basis. If a patient has 
a G tube or a GJ tube, then really, if it's safe to do a delivery through that tube that already exists, that's really a preferable route. It's much less involved for the patient, less um, extended time in the office getting the treatment and certainly easier. The capsules are really nice in a lot of ways for our patients. The major issue is that currently the capsules available are pretty large. They're a double zero capsule, which is, if any of you are aware, really hard to sell. It's the largest capsule made. And yeah. you have to take 30, 30 capsules in a half so an hour. So one every, oh, 30 capsules within minutes, half an hour? In a half an hour. And hour, you know, hour I've had, for a capsule. Yeah. And I've had kids just under 10 be successful at doing that, but obviously most kids under 10 can't swallow that many capsules. We have adults can't do it. Yeah. So it'd be challenging think, for me to do. Yeah, it would be challenging for me as well. So I think I really try to decide on a case-by-case basis as what makes sense for this patient? What makes sense for this family? Are they going to be undergoing upper endoscopy or colonoscopy? What are the risks with each procedure? And then going from there. If we could just go back for a little bit about FMT. So you mentioned that we collect from a healthy donor fecal material that's processed, and then we give that to a patient. So what is the purpose of it? I'm not sure if we quite went to that level yet. So are we replacing the bacteria? What what are we doing here? Jen, that is the million-dollar question. I think you, <laughs> you win the prize. I think... <laughs> The assumption is that we are restoring a healthy microbe to the individual and that we are replacing some components of the necessary healthy bacteria communities that most individuals have. And the exact mechanism by which that clears the C. diff is hotly debated. The role of bile acids, the role of competitive action between The healthy bacteria in the C. diff, changes in the community overall, short-chain fatty acids, nobody is 100% sure how it works. And the truth is, is the mechanism by which it works for C. diff may not be translatable to the other conditions that we're using FMT in an investigational way to treat. So for example, FMT may have very different roots or theoretical roots in which it could improve your IBD and C. diff because they're really different conditions, although they have the same symptoms. And what's really fascinating is the number of studies of FMT that are out there is really incredible. So if you go to the clinical trials website, you will see every single registered study for FMT in the U.S. and any countries abroad that have registered. And there's over 180 studies at any given time of FMT treating everything from C. diff to IBD to IBS to autism to lupus to HIV to alcoholic hepatitis to Parkinson's, you name it, people are studying it. And it's really exciting that the understanding of how the microbiome might be a really important therapeutic target for us in the future is, is it's an exciting field to be in. And it's exciting to see all of these different avenues and fields that are exploring FMT. But I think what we understand about FMT for C. diff, again, it's a very simple model. You get a bacteria, you get C. diff, you get an infection, you get the clinical manifestation in some cases, but that's not the case for IBD. It's not the case for IBS. It's 
not the case for all of these other immune-mediated conditions and neurologic and cardiac and other conditions. So I think we have a lot to learn. So, you know, if I am going to be setting somebody up for a liver transplant, for example, we have to find a match, right? There has to be several ways that they match such that it's compatible. Well, when we were talking about the process of which donor stools are like studied, we didn't necessarily bring up that word of a match. Is that something that exists? Do I look at my microbiome and say, okay, Tamara, like your stool matches where mine is deficient. Let's like, you know, how does that work? Is there a matching process? Not yet is the simple answer. My hope for the future is that we will have the technology and the resources to really be able to do microbial fingerprinting, to be able to look at each individual's microbial community within their gut and understand what are the communities that are there? What are the populations that need to be more predominant? Is it a downstream effect? Is it an upstream effect? And and really match and target what needs to be replaced or restored or altered. And I don't think we're there yet. Um, There have been a lot of questions looking at whether there should be age and gender match, but nobody has really studied this in any significant systematic way to really say, yeah, it's best if women get stool from women or children get stool from other pediatric donors. It's been hypothesized that that might be the case. But again, with C. diff, it doesn't seem to matter whether you know your donor and you have a family member donate or you get stool from a stool bank. Just seems to matter that you get stool from a relatively healthy individual and get it delivered by any of these various methods. And the success rates for C. diff and with FMT are incredibly high, 80 to 90%. And that's clearly above what we see for most other conditions. And it's what above, above what we see with antibiotic treatment of C. diff. So it'll be very interesting as this field continues to evolve and we get more defined communities. Can we do a defined microbial therapeutic transplant? And will that be the answer? And will it be an adjunct therapy? And there have been some studies to suggest that just altering the microbial community might set you up for success for treatment with different biologics. And that may be a factor in success or lack of success in the treatment of certain types of IBD. So it'll be exciting. If you have a patient who's vegetarian, do you have to take in consideration what the donor is eating or is that not something that we think about? That's a great question. So there anecdotally is evidence that lean male vegan donors are the best donors for stool. This hasn't been validated. This is anecdotal evidence from individuals who've looked at their donor pools and kind of commented on who are their most successful donors. I think we have had issues around potential allergic reactions because if your donor eats a food that your recipient might be allergic to, there has been concern, although there are also studies looking at fecal microbiota transplant as a potential treatment for those allergies through low levels of exposure. I would say that we tend to be very mindful about things that have a high risk of anaphylactic reaction. So if you have a peanut allergy and the stool you get is coming from somebody who eats peanuts, which I can't guarantee that my donors are on a peanut-free diet, um, we do have to take that risk into consideration. But we haven't seen Uh, And that I'm aware of anything in the literature saying that that has actually occurred. 
I have had families who've had dietary requests based on religious beliefs about the donors. And I've asked, had families ask about having donors that are kosher or halal. And unfortunately, I can't guarantee that the stool donors follow these special diets and that we kind of have to take what we have and that, you know, the safety of the material is what's most important. And most of them have agreed. But I have had patients who've said, can you can you get me a donor who follows this special religious diet? And I just said, I think that's one step beyond what we have the capacity to do right now. Do they kind of disclose that this patient eats peanuts and this and this, or it's just, yeah, it's very Yes, most of the donor banks don't have that capacity mm-hmm. to to examine that. I think that, again, I think that's a really exciting area of research yeah. and the potential to use FMT to treat food allergies would be very exciting yeah. and microbial exposure. And you think about antigen exposure and tolerance therapy. So I think conceptually there is a lot more to, to do there. So does it have to be human stool? Have there been studies of animal or other types of stool? That's a great question. So as far as I'm aware, there hasn't been interspecies FMT. However, there is a large literature in the veterinary sciences looking at FMT to treat diarrheal illnesses in animals. And there is a lot of suggestion that because animals, many animals are coprophagic and they eat their own waste, that they in some ways are protected from some of these illnesses that we see in humans. But there are veterinary practices that perform FMT for domestic animals, dogs, cats, as well as some of the larger animals when they develop illnesses. And in fact, Dr. Kelly, who I was speaking about earlier, has been asked to speak at veterinary science conferences on this topic and get some cross-fertilization of ideas, even if not cross-fertilization of material. <laughs> I uh, I always get mad at my dog when he eats his own. So maybe <laughs> He's doing his eat. own FMT. <laughs> I mean, but then he licks me in the face and I'm like, uh... <laughs> He's giving you FMT. <laughs> it's actually interesting you that you bring that up because there have been microbiome-based studies that have looked at how microbes spread around a house. So Jack Gilbert, one of my former colleagues from Chicago, who's now out in California, has done a lot of looking at microbial communities within the larger community. So we built a new hospital in Chicago and they did microbiome sampling on the hospital as it was being built. And then as it got populated, and then he's also tracked microbial communities through the house. And one of the biggest ways that microbes are transmitted around a house is through your dog, dogs and kids. (laughs) So maybe it is protective. And if you think about the animal studies, looking at exposure to animals in patients with IBD and whether they live in a rural community and a farming community and how that may be somewhat protective to have more exposure, certainly against developing allergies and things. It's always an interesting, there's a lot more story to learn. Yeah, that is very interesting. So you have a patient that has recurrent C. diff and you decide to do FMT. Is there a certain preparation uh, you do for this patient Uh, We know these patients are already on antibiotics. Do you stop the antibiotics? Um, 
days before? Do you, if you're planning on doing a colonoscopy delivery of the FMT, do you do a specific clean out? Um, if you can just take us through what your preparation for FMT is. Sure. So I'd say this has evolved a bit over time, and there have been debates about whether you should give individuals a high-fiber diet to try to promote the uptake of the bacteria into a healthy environment. There have been questions about whether you should or shouldn't use acid suppression, and I would say that data is unclear at this point. What I would say is that we traditionally do a normal bowel prep prior to a colonoscopy, and that the major difference is that if we deliver the material colonoscopically, we usually take the biopsies and the photos as we're going in rather than on the way out because we deliver the material as proximally as possible in the ileum and or in the cecum. And once the material is delivered, you don't really want to be taking biopsies because you won't have good visualization. And if you take pictures, they'll be all brown. So that's the main difference. And then sometimes we give a dose of loperamide to help them hold in the material and we may position them in a way to try to encourage them to retain the material just as if it was an enema because we're administering liquid stool. In terms of the other considerations, usually if we're delivering the material to the upper tract, we usually have patients fast for a couple hours, again, simply because whatever volume we give, we don't want to have them be more nauseated or more likely to regurgitate or even have emesis. So we ask them to fast for a couple hours. We usually stop antibiotics 24 to 48 hours before FMT, though in cases of patients who have fulminant C. diff, which thankfully we almost never see in pediatrics, they may continue it up till the moment of FMT, but we try to get our patients to stop at at least 24 to 48 hours in advance so that the transplant has the best opportunity to and, you know, there was a recent paper that was published on FMT where that you were involved in that the lack of an enteral feeding tube was an independent factor for FMT success. So are there other predictors of first time like failure or first time success of FMT for C. diff? It's a great question. I think that the some of the factors that predict success are also are predictors for recurrence of C. diff. So having an enteral feeding tube is a risk factor for developing C. diff. Mm -hmm. And the fact that if you have a tube makes it harder to clear the C. diff is not a surprise. And whether you have FMT via the enteral tube or not, I don't think it really makes a difference as far as we can see. And it's probably because the same reason that it causes the risk factors by, you know, another direct entry site for microbes into the gut, the alteration of the healthy microbiome that's there through the presence of piece of plastic and rubber material that's not human makes some of the difference. Uh, in terms of other risk factors, we really only have retrospective pediatric studies to tell us what are the best indications of what will be success and what isn't. Um, we have anecdotally in these works found that fresh stool seems to work better than frozen stool. We found that through the pediatric FMT registry sponsored through NASPGAN and the special interest group. We've also found that not having the feeding tube and that fewer recurrences of C. diff are more likely to predict 
success of the FMT. And that probably comes from the fact that our testing for C. diff, as you all know, is far from perfect. We're testing for the toxin. We're not testing for the bacteria itself. We don't know if we're picking up individuals who are shedding toxin or individuals who are colonized. We may also be picking up individuals who simply have C. diff, but not a toxigenic strain. So we worry that if individuals have had numerous episodes of, quote, C. diff, that may or may not be truly the major culprit in their symptoms, then we sometimes see that the C. diff is not really cleared with the FMT because maybe it's not really the driver of the Mm -hmm. symptoms and the diarrhea. And they see that particularly in adults as well and individuals who have other conditions that cause the diarrhea. So that brings me to my next question. So some of the kind of, I wouldn't say side effects, but things you would see after FMT that patients would have some abdominal pain, some diarrhea. How would you determine if that's um, just a recurrent C. diff um, versus just part of the process of FMT? And when when would you consider repeating FMT in a patient with persistent C. diff? That's a great question as well. So it can be a little bit tricky. We tell families to anticipate a little bit of loose stool following the FMT if it was administered by any means except for capsule, because the capsules are obviously uh, are desiccated materials, so there is no liquid. But any of the other material delivery routes, we do sometimes see some liquid stool or diarrhea for a day or two. I've actually also had patients call and complain that they're constipated after an FMT, which is some shows sometimes you just can't win. You go from one extreme to the other. But in general, I tell patients that after 48 hours, they're having a return of that frequent diarrhea, urgency, the cutoff is technically three or more watery stools a day. If there's blood, if there's mucus, if there's cramping, urgency, incontinence, the foul smell that's typical of C. diff, then we recommend testing. Again, we don't recommend testing to document clearance because as you know, even with an Mm -hmm. FMT, you may continue to be C. diff positive with or without symptoms. So we don't recommend test for cure. What are the potential complications of FMT? So you mentioned going over them with the family, but what are the complications and do you have any specific contraindications? With any investigational therapy, we do have to anticipate that there are the potential for adverse events. Most of these are mild. We see belly pain, we might see some bloating, as we talked about, we may see some looser stools, some gas, even some constipation. What we worry about most, however, are patients that clearly did not do well with the treatment. And there are patients who are reported to have almost a hypersensitivity type of reaction following FMT, where they develop more severe belly pain, they might get a low-grade fever, they may really not feel well. Some of these individuals have presented to the hospital. This has most often been documented in individuals who have underlying IBD. We haven't typically seen this inflammatory response in otherwise healthy individuals. But it is a theoretical risk. There is also the risk that an individual could have an allergic reaction to one of the antigens in the stool. Long-term, we don't know 
the effects of how changing the microbiome with microbiome from somebody else is going to impact. We do our best, again, to screen out individuals who might have risk factors, but we really take this investigational nature of this treatment seriously. And so we have undertaken a large prospective study in collaboration with the AGA and NIH to track the long-term outcomes and complications that may be associated with FMT. And we're very happy to report that at least our preliminary data has demonstrated that it is incredibly safe. Uh, We've seen very low rates of complication and these inflammatory responses haven't panned out to be as as common as we thought they might be. And in general, the procedure is very well tolerated. Obviously, there are also any risks associated with the route of delivery. So if you're doing uh, sedation, you have to consider aspiration of the patient. Certainly, we don't want anybody aspirating microbes. That would be really a quite serious complication. We screen the material extensively to try to reduce the risk of delivery of another infectious agent. We have reports of individuals doing FMT at home without medical supervision. In those cases, we have seen adverse outcomes where patients have presented using family members in a non-controlled way without medical supervision present with very serious infections likely due to using this material that hasn't been tested. And then, of course, we have risks of the procedure. So if it's doing a colonoscopy, we you know, have the potential for any colonoscopic complications. And of course, those aren't necessarily attributable to the FMT because of the procedure itself. I About can't any- imagine just doing that at home. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. crazy is if you look yeah. online, there's mm-hmm. like recipes and there's stuff. There's a lot of videos. recipes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there have even been groups that have sold kits to how to do it at home with a disposable blender. And there are really a lot of people who've taken advantage of the vulnerability of this population and how eager people are to have material to do this at home. And it is readily available, right? Anybody can collect this material. It's not something you have to get a prescription for, which is part of what makes it amazing, but also brings the risk because patients have access to this. And we we have seen quite serious adverse outcomes when people have done this at home without medical supervision. And I guess the second part of the question was any contraindications? There have been contraindications to performing FMT in immunocompromised individuals. That said, there have been groups that have pursued FMT in individuals who are immunocompromised given the high risk of adverse outcomes just from the C. diff alone. And most of those studies have been very, very promising. So there have been debates about whether FMT should be used in individuals with fulminant C. diff. And the most recent work has come out showing that FMT actually may decrease morbidity and mortality and the need for surgery in these cases, which is really incredibly remarkable. And with respect to the immunocompromised, there are actually even groups looking at microbiome manipulation in individuals with underlying malignancy, individuals going chemo- undergoing chemotherapy, individuals with fever and neutropenia. And what's surprising is, is that there's actually been very few adverse outcomes reported in these populations. What I say is, I think that you have to respect the material. It carries a certain degree of risk and that those risks have to be discussed 
You may need to discuss them with the individual's primary team if they've undergone transplant, their transplant specialist, their oncologist, and their immunologist, and really understand what are the pros and the cons to considering this treatment. I think if the individual is truly suffering with recurrent C. diff and that is the major driving force, then it is absolutely worth considering. But I think that sometimes people get a little cavalier because it's fecal material and they're like, well, what could be so bad? But once you see one or two patients who haven't done as well, then you really have to understand that there's a reason the FDA has proceeded with so much caution around this treatment and tried to make sure that we delivered in the safest way possible to individuals. We had a long discussion with um, Evelyn Sue about how the pandemic has affected the liver transplant. Um, how about in fecal microbiome transplant? Has the pandemic itself affected the availability of donors, the ability to transplant patients, or had any effect? So COVID-19 has had a really interesting impact both on C. diff and the availability of FMT material. So interestingly, again, this is based on what I've heard from my colleagues around the world who take care of individuals with C. diff is, is that we've seen a decrease. And this probably has to do with the fact that a lot of communities were on quarantine and on lockdown and individuals were not getting exposed to the same illnesses and not getting the same number of antibiotics. And so we saw a real decrease in the number of cases of C. diff. We also probably saw some benefit from lack of community acquired cases because kids were home, grownups were home. And so wherever these community acquired cases are coming from, we really saw a big decrease and people are also wearing a lot more PPE, which also, and a lot more handwashing, which certainly helps prevent the spread of C. diff. But we also had real problems with availability of donor material and our largest stool bank, Open Biome, which provided stool on a nonprofit basis to communities around the U.S. and around the world had to halt production and develop a testing protocol for individuals with C. diff to make sure that the stool was safe, that the donors were safe, and it required a complete overhaul of their program. And the material wasn't available for some time. And since then, they've changed the guidelines, but it's really slowed down the availability of FMT material. And in fact, unfortunately, Open Biome has since had to shut down production of additional material and is going to be closing its doors because the testing requirements have become so extensive, not just for COVID, but for other bacteria and viruses. And it is no longer feasible for them to do testing even on large scale and provide it to individuals on an affordable basis. And that there's the hope that there will be newer materials that have been approved by the FDA that are commercially available, which is really exciting. There are several groups that are developing products that are in phase three studies that are microbiome-based therapies. The biggest challenge is, is of like everything else in pediatrics, they haven't been studied in kids. And we know the pipeline to have them available in our pediatric clinics is quite long, and we will probably be waiting another five to 10 years for pediatric indications and approvals. So we're really hopeful that some of these will get fast-tracked for pediatrics and that there will be groups that are still interested in exploring options of FMT and MT-based therapies for our pediatric patients, because many of them won't be eligible for these newer therapeutics. FMT is widely used for C. diff. There's uh, a couple of controversial kind of 
uh, uses for FMT. And one of the big ones is using it for um, management of IBD um, and not, not the patients that have C. diff, but patients with colitis. What are your thoughts about that? And what is the literature out there about that? So part of my interest in studying FMT was not just initially for C. diff, but for FMT as a treatment for IBD and some of my early work in Chicago was focused on looking at FMT as a potential therapy. Would patients be willing to consider it? What would be the risks? And we've done even some small pilot studies looking at FMT as a treatment for colitis. Since coming to Boston, I've been heading up the program here, and we've continued to explore these questions. And the answer is not so clear. I think the truth is, is that modulating and manipulating the microbiome is going to be an important aspect of treatment. And how we do that is the question that we all are seeking the answer to. So is it diet? Is it some sort of prebiotic or master probiotic, or is it a microbial transplant of some kind? I think that the studies looking at fecal microbiota transplant for IBD do show some benefit in some patients, particularly those with ulcerative colitis. Those studies have been most successful when they use pooled donor stool. So you have seven donors with the idea that the bad bacteria or less helpful bacteria are being overcome by the number of good bacteria because you just have the largest pool again, because we don't have bacterial or microbial fingerprinting. Those studies have been the most promising. It's pretty clear that it's not universally helpful, but I think if you look at our current treatments that we have available for our BBD patients, we're really aware that nothing is a magic bullet. We don't have one, one size fits all. I think that there's some really interesting work being done that shows that manipulating the microbiome can be a helpful aspect in the treatment of IBD. And the question is, is how do we do that safely? And what are the best targets? And is it going to be an adjunct to make our biologics work better? Is it going to be a treatment that's required in our patients just at the time of diagnosis? So we hit the microbiome with a restored microbial community early on before some of those chronic changes occur. What are the ways that we can really tap into this treatment. And I don't think we know that yet, but I do think that there are a lot more studies needed because I think that FMT is is not the, the only story and that we must really begin to explore the microbiome and its role and the role of dysbiosis or this unbalance in the microbial communities and how does it affect our health and, and how can we use the microbes in us to ameliorate our health. I mean, that's incredible. I think, like you said, there's so much to come and you've had such an amazing and successful career, uh, Dr. Khan. So one of my favorite parts of the podcast is the career advice portion. So if you look back on your career, what is the most valuable advice that you have received and what advice do you have for our listeners? So I think there are two things. The first is a very old adage, right? Perfect is the enemy of good. And I think as physicians and scientists, we always aim for perfection. We are, it's ingrained, it's in our blood, it's in our DNA. And it's so interesting because that's just the way we're wired and we want everything to be perfect. And I think that sometimes we have to understand, just like with FMT, we don't 
have a perfect understanding of what works. We don't have a perfect understanding of the best way to study it, but we do have good ideas that we need to further pursue. And whether you're writing your manuscript that came out perfectly or didn't come out perfectly or your experiment or whether your treatment of your patient is what you would hope and the family wants the kid to be perfectly well, you have to you have to realize what's attainable. And of course, we we strive for it in everything we do, but we also have to remember that um, doing well is progress. And I think that's an important message for all of us to sort of like let go of some of this pressure we put on ourselves to have everything we do be perfect. I think the other thing is to love what you do. And I think that I've had some really incredible mentors and role models and we have challenging jobs. We have people's children that we are responsible for and their health is the parents' number one priority and their children's well-being is their number one priority. I really needed to hear that perfect comment yeah. today. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. I need to hear that every day. I'm just going to- Good is progress. <laughs> That's good. The advice I would give is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Yeah. Good and love progress. what you do. Yeah. Good yeah. is progress and love what you do. Mm-hmm. Those are two excellent advices that I think we all need to remember because we- always want to strive for perfection, but we have to remember that that's not something that we can do. So um, this time time I can be perfect. (laughs) This time, Jen, you can be perfect. (laughs) After I revise my manuscript for the 17th time and my mentor says, stop. Yeah. 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 Send it in. Get it done. (laughs) It's that one typo that triggers everything. (laughs) Want to hear a funny story? (laughs) Yeah. I had a typo in the first line of my essay for medical school. Uh, (laughs) Oh, you know what? Look at you now. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, it was one of those were aware type of comp, like it was one of the things Mm -hmm. that spell check wouldn't have picked up. And, and, (laughs) and my parents read it. Teachers read it, my professors read it, my everybody read it, and nobody picked it up because we all autocorrect in our head. And you it's know true. what? I went back and I, I was going through some papers and I found it and I just couldn't believe that I had this typo. <laughs> with it. And I was horrified. But I realized that, you know, we're all human. That's true. Well, Dr. Khan, it's been it's it's been wonderful to have you. I feel like we've learned a lot about FMT. Uh, it's great hearing you kind of uh, talk very passionately about this. Um, any final words for our listeners? I just want to thank you all for what you do for our community. I think that this is such an incredible resource and it's so creative and it is such an important piece of building our community. And I'm really grateful that you all started it. And I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to be a part of it. And I think it's a fantastic initiative that you all have pioneered and brought to NASPGAN. And I hope it continues for a long time. And I've loved getting to know you all. Thank you, Dr. Khan. That means a lot. Well, this was so awesome.
Uh, what a great episode. I feel like I learned a lot and uh, it was great to have Dr. Khan here on uh, Bow Sounds. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Is that okay? Or- yeah. Yeah, Did definitely you say it's something? okay to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Are you sure? To- <laughs> if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Bow Sounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming shows. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would help us out if you do one or all of the following three things. Tell someone about the podcast, leave a review on Apple Apple Podcasts to help others discover our podcast and so we can shout it out at future episodes. And on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspigan Foundation. You can also get there at www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support the amazing things the foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research, public education programs. As always, the discussion, views, and recommendations of this podcast are sole responsibility of the host and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thank you for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.